Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for being here and worshiping with us today. If you're joining us online, thanks for joining us and worshiping with us today as well. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 um, is where we're studying. We've been going through the book of Ruth for this, this month together. And if you were here this last week, you know that we ended a Ruth chapter 3 on a cliffhanger. At the end of Ruth chapter 3, we were introduced to this fact that there was this mystery man, and we don't know anything else about him, but he was a relative closer than Boaz, and it jeopardized this whole love connection between Ruth and Boaz, and it left us there hanging. Well, fortunately for us, today we get to find out the conclusion of that story um, and what God has in store for him and uh, for them and how he concludes this love story. But more importantly, we also get to see how God has a larger love story um, in mind for us to hear as well. And it changes everything. This story, true to life, is filled with twists and turns and ups and downs. And yet in the midst of all of the twists and turns and the ups and downs and the, the challenges, the difficulty, the dark days... What we see in the book of Ruth is that God's hand is still at work, that God light, his light still shines even in our darkest days, and it gives us hope. It gives us hope that we can keep taking one step forward at a time, even when we can't see all that's going on and all the difficulty, knowing that God is still present. God is still with us, and he's still working even when we can't see it. And it's a beautiful, beautiful reminder, and it's a, it's a beautiful picture for us to see how God is still caring for us in the midst of our dark days. Now, if you were here the last couple of weeks, you know that this story takes place in the backdrop of pain and loss and difficulty, and it's, it's represented for the whole nation as well. It takes place during the time period of the judges. And the thesis, the, the theme statement for this book of, judge, of the book of Judges is this, that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So it was the dark ages of Israel's history. But this story focuses in on one family, Naomi and Ruth and their two boys. Uh, sorry, Naomi and um, Elimelech and their two boys. And it focuses in on their life. And they're faced with a, a famine in the land. And during this famine, this hardship that comes to them, they decide to move away from God's uh, promised land to look for greener grass in the nation of, of Moab, the neighboring country of Moab, which, which was Israel's sworn enemies. So they leave Israel, they go to Moab, but while they're there and as they get settled in, tragedy hits. Elimelech dies. Naomi is left without her husband and she's left with her two boys. Then she allows her two boys to marry Moabite women, and they stay there for another 10 years, and then tragedy hits again, and her two boys pass away. And so they left Israel to flee a famine, and she ended up with three funerals. It's a tragic story, and she's so um, in so much pain and so much darkness, she feels as if God has abandoned her. But at this point, she decides to return back to Israel, back to Bethlehem, her hometown. And as Naomi goes back to her hometown, she tells her daughters-in-law, who she's responsible for, she tells them to go back to their families, to go back to their ancestral gods, and to not go with her. 
Um, one of her, her daughter-in-law does go back home, but Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, says, no way, I'm not leaving you. I am sticking with you. And it's a remarkable decision because she's, uh, Ruth is making a commitment to say, I'm, gonna, I'm okay leaving my homeland and I'm leaving my ancestral gods and I'm going to go with Naomi to her land, back to, over to Israel, and I'm going to um, now choose to follow the one true God of Israel. So it's a remarkable decision that Ruth makes to go with Naomi. Now, Naomi, because of all the, the pain and the hurt in her life, she can't see in that moment the gift that Ruth is to her, that God is still caring for her through this person that she's gifted her with. But she begins to see that later. We see that even a fuller way today as we look at chapter 4. But as they enter into, back into Bethlehem, they're starving. They have no resources. And so Ruth, the daughter-in-law, says, I'll go out and I'm going to glean in a local field and see if I can find some food, some resources for us to move forward. And so she goes and she gleans in a local field. And it just so happens to be a field belonging to Boaz. Boaz, who is a relative and qualifies as a guardian redeemer. Now, it's important for us to understand what a guardian redeemer is because it was important in chapter 2, but it's also very important for us to understand where we land here in chapter 4 today. A guardian redeemer was someone who could step in. It was part of God's care, God's plan to provide a solution for the widow who had lost her husband. In, in, in ancient Israel, everything hinged on <clears throat> land and lineage. And if a husband passed away, the land was, was left open and the, the lineage, there was a, a, the chain length ended if there's no male heir. And so God, in, in care for the widow, to make sure that their land and their lineage could continue, and that's still important in many cultures today, of course, um, he set up this concept of the guardian redeemer who could step in and care for the family. And the, the guardian redeemer would be ideally the, a brother to the deceased husband. Then the brother could step in and marry uh, the widow and the name, family property and name would continue. But if there was no brother, then it could be open to any relative. But the idea was still this, that that relative would step in and purchase the property and, um, and <clears throat> marry the widow so that the property and the name could continue in the deceased husband's name. It wouldn't belong to the person, the guardian redeemer who's stepping in. They're just caring for that family so that that property, that land, that lineage could carry on. It was part of a way to care for them. And so that's the concept. And so in order to qualify to be a guardian redeemer, there was a couple of qualifications. And so I just want to show you uh, briefly, if you have your notes, you can look there um, on the back. There's a space if you want to fill these in, you're welcome to. But the guardian redeemer, first of all, must be a relative. Secondly, the guardian redeemer must be free. That is free of debt. They can't have debt um, that would encumber them from being the guardian redeemer. Then third, they must be able to pay. Not only are they free of debt, but they also have to have resources to be able to purchase the property and to care for that family moving forward. But then fourth, they also must be willing to pay. They must be willing to pay the price because it has no benefit to them. It's a benefit to that family and to the lineage of the deceased husband. So they have to be willing. They have to voluntarily step up and be willing to be that guardian redeemer. Now, Boaz 
meets all of those qualifications. And not only that, we, we find out that he's a, he's a single guy. He's a little bit older. He's, he's wealthy. He has resources. And he, when he meets Ruth and he hears about her character and, and how she has cared for Naomi, he cares for her. And she, he says, glean in my field. He provides food, water, and protection for her. And it's this beautiful thing. And in fact, and we've talked about this, that it, we keep seeing that just then, you know, Ruth shows up. It, it just so happens that Ruth goes to Boaz's field. And just then, Boaz shows up. And there's these moments of providence, this sense of, oh, it's coincidence. But we know it's not coincidence. It's God working in the midst of the story. He's weaving his plan, his purposes throughout this story. And there's two ways that we see God work. There's God's visible hand of miracle, and there's God's invisible hand of providence. And what we see in the book of Ruth is God's invisible hand of providence working its way, his, his light shining in the darkness behind the scenes. Now, of course, all of us want to see God's visible hand of miracle in our life, don't we? Most of us would say, well, I want to have what Moses experienced, this this God speaking to me through a burning bush, that kind of a visible miracle. We want those experiences. And I'll just say this. If you have that kind of experience, one, that's amazing. And two, you also may need help if 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 your God is speaking to you through a bush. It just may be one of those things where, like, is this really happening, right? So there's that side of things. But then there's the reality that the the truth is the majority of times that God works, both in in the scriptures as well in our lives, is through very small ways. It's through small, everyday ways. That's how God works. And it's that invisible hand of providence that we don't see, but then we can look back later and say, oh, God, you are working. Your hand was there. You are with me. And today your grace shows up in these moments. See, what it means to be a follower of God is following God through very ordinary days and still trusting that he's with you, walking with you in those very ordinary days. And that's what we see taking place for Ruth and Naomi. God's walking with them through very ordinary days, but his hand of providence, his work behind the scenes is still taking place. And here here they are now. Ruth is working at Boaz's field during this barley harvest. But the barley harvest comes to an end. And Naomi, who's been watching this, you know, love connection, waiting for Ruth and Boaz to, you know, work things out, um, now it begins to feel like, well, maybe it won't happen because the barley harvest is ending. Ruth isn't going to be gleaning in the field anymore. Maybe this love connection won't happen. And I just picture Naomi every day, just, you know, at home waiting for Ruth to come and say, so Ruth, how'd your interactions go with Boaz today? You know, what did you, what'd you talk about? What'd you, what happened? I'm just picturing her going, okay, how's this, is this going to work? Now, it doesn't seem to be happening in the timing that Naomi's picturing, and it seems to be, that window seems to be closing. So she comes up with a plan for the Ruth and Boaz connection to take place, and she tells Ruth her plan, and it's, it's a questionable plan at that. It ends up being kind of this midnight rendezvous scenario, and Ruth follows through with the plan, but in the end, Ruth uh, chooses not to seduce Boaz, but instead come to Boaz and said, will you be willing to be my guardian redeemer? Will you will you marry me? Essentially is what she says. And then Boaz says to Ruth, yes, I will be your guardian redeemer. I will marry you. And so it sounds at this moment amazing, like everything is working out. Boaz is saying, yes, Ruth, this poor widow is going to, it's going to all work out. But then Boaz says something that 
makes you go, wait, what? Because Boaz says, but there is another guardian redeemer, another relative who's closer than me, who has the first right to be your guardian redeemer. And even as we hear that at the end of chapter three, we're left going, but that's not right. That can't be. And we just know that there's something wrong with this scenario, that there could be this mystery man that steps in and messes everything up. But that's where, we left, where we're left in Ruth, at the end of Ruth chapter 3, the suspense of what will happen for Boaz and Ruth. But it's not just our suspense, it's for Naomi and Ruth as well. They're, they're left you know, with this sense of, okay, Boaz said yes, but there's somebody else. And so Naomi says to Ruth, just wait. Be patient. Wait on God. Wait on Boaz because he's not going to rest until things um, get settled and we'll see what takes place. And that's where we come to now. In Ruth chapter 4, we see the conclusion of the story and what takes place next. And so what I want to do is I invite you to stand in honor of God's word. We'll read um, Ruth chapter 4 here and then we'll look at it a little bit closer. Let's stand together as we read. It says this in, in verse 1. Meanwhile... Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the, of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, uh, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to her our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We'll look at the whole passage here in just a moment. But what I want to do is go back to uh, verse 1 and look at, look at it a little bit closer with you. So be, back in verse 1, it says this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat, down, sat there um, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. So Boaz wastes no time. This is the morning after that kind of midnight moment he has with Ruth. This is the next morning. He goes and he has a plan. He doesn't waste any time. He goes to the town gate. The town gate's important because this is the place where business meetings would take place, where transactions would happen. So he goes to the town gate. It also happens to be a safe spot to be because he knows at some point this other relative, this other guardian redeemer is going to be coming into town. So he's up front waiting for that moment for him to come. Now, we also see God's hand of providence at this moment because it's just that he sits, as soon as he sits down, um, he does so just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned comes along. 
Then Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and he sat down. So, of course, just as Boaz sits down, this guy shows up and he says, come over here, my friend. Now, he calls him my friend, and throughout this whole chapter, we never know the name of this other relative, this other potential guardian redeemer. In fact, in Hebrew, um, it's literally translated as Mr. So-and-so. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, come on over and sit down. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, I have a business <laughs> a proposal for you. It's Mr. So-and-so. And the question is, why does he call him Mr. So-and-so? And why does the narrator never give the name? I believe it's because the narrator is trying to protect this guy, protect his identity, because he doesn't come across very well in this story. And it's a protection for him. It's a protection for his kids because it's embarrassing. He doesn't come across well. So it's just, he's known as Mr. So-and-so. He invites him to sit down. And then verse two, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. So Boaz, um, as he has this guy sit down, he brings the other 10 elders to sit there to be a part of this interaction. Now, this is really amazing because what we see with Boaz is uh, he's being very thorough and he's, being, he's getting 10 guys there. So th- in many ways, he's, he wants witnesses. He doesn't want anything left to chance. He's, not, he's taking all the precautions and he wants this to be a deal of, of integrity with witnesses. He wants it done right, which is really amazing because this is during a time in the book of Judges where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. He's saying, I'm gonna follow the law. I wanna have witnesses. I wanna do this well, I want to do this right. And so it's amazing. And in some ways, it's, it's, inc- it's fun to see someone who has uh, a business mind because you're going to see he's, think, he's thought this through. He has a business strategy. He has a business mind, but he has integrity and he has skill. And it's so fun uh, to watch. And maybe you've been there before where you watch someone who has business mind or legal skills or negotiation, negotiating skills and you see them at work and you're like, that's amazing. That's what we get to witness here with Boaz because he really has all of those things in place. So he brings together a group so that it's, um, <clears throat> it's done before witnesses. And then he says this in verse three. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, <clears throat> Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So he comes to this guy, Mr. So-and-so, and he says, um, our relative Naomi, she's back. And she has to sell her land in order to live. But she could sell that to anyone, but it would be so much better if she could sell it to a relative, a guardian redeemer, because then that property could stay in her name. And if there's a male heir, of course, it could go on in, in, and it would be belong to that family. So that would be the right thing to do. This would be a good thing to do. Now, of course, if there is no male heir and he buys the land, and Naomi eventually passes away, that, that land, that piece of property, goes back to that guardian redeemer. It becomes a part of his estate if there's no one to pass it along to. So Boaz comes to him and says, hey, there's a property with Naomi. She's going to sell, but wouldn't it be great if we could do it this way for her? And the guy says to her, this is, says, here's his, his, he says to him, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here, in the presence of the elders of my people. So he's suggesting it to him. You're like, wait a minute, Boaz, is this smart? Are you really, you really want to give it away? Again, he's doing everything right 
but he has a strategic plan. Then verse, um, after he says this to them, <clears throat> him, he says, the man says, I will re- if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. So Boaz is saying, hey, listen, you have the first right to redeem this property. If not, if not let me know, I will redeem it. But this man sees the opportunity for new property to add to his estate, and he says, I will redeem it, he said. So after he says, yes, um, then this is the moment where Boaz then says, oh yeah, by the way, there's a little hidden clause with this arrangement. And so then he sneaks in this other piece of the equation um, in verse 5. He says, then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the land from Naomi, here's what you need to know, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Oh yeah, by the way, when you do this, when you step into redeem, you also get Ruth the Moabite so that this family lineage could continue. And at this point, this other guy, Mr. So-and-so, has a little bit of a change of heart, and we see that in verse 6. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So, uh, I'll keep reading, I guess. So, the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. This concept of the sandal removal um, was this idea that of the business transaction. If I'm selling you this property, this property goes in your possession, I'm giving you my sandal. That is, I'm saying, I'm not stepping foot on this property. This is now yours, and I give that sandal kind of that, that symbol to say, this is no longer mine. I won't be stepping onto it. It is yours. So, that's kind of the idea with that sandal um, piece. But the guardian redeemer... When he finds out, oh yeah, by the way, the property comes with this Moabite woman named Ruth, who's the, who we're trying to keep the family lineage going, he backs away from this, this like a, faster than a man who's facing a coiled rattlesnake. He's like, whoa, 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 hey, wait a minute. He steps back and he's like, I can't do this. I can't do it. What, se- what initially seemed to him as like a can't miss investment deal turns out to be an investment nightmare. And he's like, whoa, whoa, I don't want to do that because, yes, I want the property. And I, uh, you know, but if it comes with this, this Moabite woman that I have to marry, and then on top of it, I get a bitter mother-in-law, that just sounds like a bad idea. And, of course, if there is no, uh, if there's a male heir that comes from this new marriage with, with Ruth, then, then I don't get anything. Then it goes in his name. So I'd be purchasing property, caring for this widow and a bitter mother-in-law, and then at the end, I could walk away with nothing. And so he's like, this doesn't work for me. It just doesn't add up. So he says, no, thank you. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to back away from this deal. Now, here's something that's important for us to recognize when, we, when it comes to <clears throat> this part of the story. It's easy for us, I think, to look at this other guy, this other guardian redeemer, and think to ourselves, man, what an idiot. He totally misses it. He totally wimps out. He has an opportunity to serve, to care for Naomi, for Ruth, and do what's right, and he doesn't. He steps away. 
And it's easy for us to look at him with a, a sense of judgment. But the question that we have to ask is, what about us? What do we do in those scenarios? Is there a little bit of Mr. So-and-so in each one of us? When the moment comes to care for, to serve, to sacrifice, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of someone else, what do we do? Do we back away or do we step forward? Because this whole idea of redemption means that we are purchasing, we're buying. In fact, the biblical definition of redemption is this, this idea that to buy back or to purchase someone or something that is lost, to rescue, it's buying, it's purchasing. That is, redemption comes with a cost. It's costly. And the question for us, the question for Mr. So-and-so, is it worth the cost? And for him, the cost was too high. To redeem, to rescue, it costs too much. And it's easy to look at him with judgment, but in the moments we face on a regular basis, we can step away from opportunities to serve and sacrifice for others too. Because it's one thing for us to say, yeah, I want to care for those who are hurting. I want to care for the needy. I want to care for the marginalized. But then when it comes right down to it, it costs us something. For you, you might say, yeah, I want to care for the, uh, the emotionally challenged person at my work. But then the question is, well, how can you find yourself strategically avoiding them every chance you get when you are at work with them? And the answer to that is because it costs you something. They're um, they're, it's difficult. It costs you time. It costs you attention. You might get caught up in their drama. You may have to spend extra time listening when you're like, I'm pretty comfortable with my schedule and my day. I want to care for you. I just don't have time. It costs too much. I know that for many of us will say, I want to care for the widow person in my neighborhood. But the question is, how come that never makes it to your calendar? Well, the answer is because it it's, it's a disruption. It, 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 you've got your schedule. You've got your thing. And it just, it, there's a cost to it. It's not that your heart isn't there, of course, but there's a cost to it and it never makes it there. You may say, well, I want to share Jesus with my friends. I want to have that conversation to be able to share Jesus with the, my coworker, my family member. But then the, the question is, well, how come that conversation, conversation never takes place? And the answer is, well, the cost might be kind of high, I can't control it. I mean, what if they ask me questions that I can't answer? What if when I share Jesus with them, things get awkward and, you know, there's a pulling away and, you know, I don't want to ruin that relationship. And so I, the, the cost is too high and we end up not sharing Jesus with others. Do you see how easy it would be for any one of us to be in the same position as Mr. So-and-so and say, yeah, there's an opportunity to serve, to sacrifice, to care, but the cost is too high, and we step away, and we miss the opportunity. I think some of the challenges that we face and we have to be honest about when it comes to caring for others, serving others, sacrificing for others, are what I call the three C's. There's, there's cost, there's control, and there's comfort. And when you find yourself in a position where you have an opportunity to care for someone, to reach out, to sacrifice, to serve someone, and you don't, It's likely because of cost, control, or comfort. When our family, when my wife and I were having kids and we had our our first two, Jay and Renee, 
Um, and we knew we wanted to grow our family, and we had conversations about that. And I remember talking to Lisa, hey, you know, we, we should be, see if, it'd be fun to see if our family could continue to grow. And she said, that's great, but I'd love to see our family grow through adoption. And I'm like, okay, let me pray about that. Let me think about that. And as we did research and we did praying, we did thinking about it, I struggled. I struggled with this concept of adoption. Do you know why? Because it pushed on me this sense of cost, control, and comfort. The cost is there. It's, there's a sense of it's out of my control. I'm pretty comfortable with the way things have gone and how we're doing and how things have gone. So, so whoa, I don't know if we can move forward. And it took me some time to get there. And I'll tell you maybe that story at some other point, but I got to a point where I realized none of those reasons kept Jesus from being my savior. And if he was willing to redeem me, to restore me, to step into my life when there's cost and my life is out of control and, you know, he probably was very comfortable, you know, being in heaven instead of coming down to earth and entering into the brokenness of humanity. But he did anyway that I recognized, okay, I got to just stop putting on the brakes. And I remember the moment when we first got matched with our kids um, when we got matched with Kai and with Levi, I have a picture of this, these first pictures that we received from China of our daughter Kai and our son Levi. And stepping forward in the midst of like, I don't know how much it's going to cost us and there's stuff that's out of my, outside of my control. And yes, it's pushing all my comfort zone issues. But you know what? It's become the greatest blessing of our life. And here's a picture of them now together just, just recently. And it's just, it's fun to see what God did, not me, because listen, I was, I was struggling. But I began to recognize that there's this, there's this backwards way of, of the kingdom of God. It's, it's different than our tendency. Our tendency to think is that, okay, in order to, to receive fullness, to receive happiness, we have to, to get. We have this concept, what can I get? What can I get rather than what can I give? But the reality is, in the kingdom of God, it's upside down. There's a new math, a new calculus, that the way to fullness is through emptiness. The way to fullness is emptiness. And you know this is, you know this is true. The people in your life who have the most joy, the people in your life who have the most fulfillment are those who are giving. The people who are generous, even when they don't have a bunch of stuff, they're still choosing to give. They're generous, not asking, what can I get? Or what's the cost? But instead saying, what can I give? How can I contribute? They're the ones that experience real joy. They're the ones that have the fullness in life. And this is true in the kingdom of God, that the way to fullness is through emptiness. It's giving up. It's saying, hey, I'm not worried about that cost. Yes, it will cost me, but I'm willing to pay the price so that others could be served, so that, so that there could be a way that I could to respond in the way that God has responded to me. He cared for me. He loved me. He gave. He sacrificed for me. So then I got to do that for others. And then guess what? I'm more fulfilled. I find more joy. I have more happiness instead of what can I get? What can I give? This is the way that God works. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. This other guy, this other re guardian redeemer who chose, who saw the price tag, who saw the cost, the risk, and said no Guess what? He doesn't have the reward either, does he? He stepped away from stepping in to care for, for Ruth and, and Naomi. 
and he has no name. They don't even know who he is. He has no legacy, no lineage. But Boaz, he steps forward. He's willing to pay the price. He has legacy. His name is remembered, and he was a part of a great lineage. And that's what we get to see Boaz step in. And next, this is what we see in, in verse 9. He, he continues this with the, to seal this deal. In verse 9, he says, Then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have brought, bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Boaz is doing this all for Naomi and Ruth. It's not that they deserve it. It's not that they've done anything to earn it. He's simply stepping in to care for them. It's at great cost to him. He's paying the price. And there's no benefit. It doesn't add to his estate. It adds to their estate. It keeps the, the property in their name. And the, any, any children from this, this new marriage will be in Malon's name. It's all for someone else, not him. He's willing to step in and pay that price for their benefit. And so he's saying, I'm doing this all in front of you, the witnesses. Then verse 11. Then the elders and all the uh, people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Then the following verse 11. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Boaz is not doing this for the praise of man. And yet men recognize the sacrifice and his character and they praise him anyway. That's not his motivation, but they praise him. They say, whoa, this is amazing. And they make this offering, this blessing. And there's something special here. We see this man, Boaz, who not only steps in to serve, but he's using the gifts that God has given him. He has the resources. He has the ability. And he's willing to do it. He's a businessman, like I was talking about earlier, that you're watching. You're like, man, he negotiated this perfectly. He knew what he was doing. And there's something beautiful when God uses our gifts, our resources, our talents to bless other people. There's something that I think just makes God smile. It just brings him pleasure. When we use our gifts, who we are, our resources, our talents to care for others, to rescue others, to redeem others, to care for those who are marginalized, it gives God, it brings him pleasure. I think God smiles when he sees an accountant and she's using her gifts, her computing skills and her analyzing skills and her ability and her skills to bless other people. I think God is looking at that saying, that's my girl. That's how I wired her. And she's using her skills, her gifts, her talents to serve other people. When God sees a businessman or a businesswoman using their gifts, using their resources to bless other people in spite of the cost or the the challenge or whatever it might be, it makes God smile. It it brings him pleasure. And I know that sometimes there are businesswomen and businessmen who wonder, should I leave the business world and go into ministry? And my question, my response is this. Maybe you stay in the business world and see it as a ministry that God would use your skills, that God would use your gifts right there where you're at. Whatever God has gifted you with, that you would use it to bless other people, that you would have a redemption ministry, a a care ministry for the people God has blessed 
put in your, put in your life even the disruptions that cost you something because it's for their benefit. This is how God can use us and wants to use us. And we see God do this with Boaz. And people recognize it and they give God praise and they, they, they say, may your name be great because of what, what God has done through you. And then in ver- the next verse, the, through the offspring the Lord gives you and by your young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, um, uh, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Then next verse. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. This is great. For 10 years, she had no children uh, previously in her previous marriage, but God allows her to, to conceive and give birth to a son. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, praise be the, to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. Next verse, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. And who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. See, everyone else says they see this gift of Ruth in Naomi's life and say she is a blessing. She's a resource from God that he has put in your life in your darkness, in your difficulty. When the moments you thought God abandoned you, he hadn't. He'd even put a person right next to you to care for you, to show you grace, who loves you and has cared for you. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Then verse 16, then Naomi took the child in her arms and he cared for him. So there's this beautiful picture of grandma taking this new baby, a woman who, who said, call me bitter, God's given up on me, who thought she was beyond redemption. Here she is in this redemption moment. God has cared for her. God has given her this blessing of a grandson and she's holding him. Then the next verse, verse 17, the women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This is significant because we know that David is great King David, the king who's the most famous in all of Israel. And do you remember how chapter 1 opens up, and I've been reminding you about it every single week? Then the period of the judges, this was the time when there was no king. There was no king. But here we see that God is providing not only for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, God is providing for his people. And he's providing them and he's putting together a plan for them to have a king. But ultimately through that king comes the king of kings, Jesus. So in the midst of this little love story between Boaz and Ruth, there's a larger love story that God is working out his plan to care for people, all people who would turn to him as king, he is caring for them and providing a plan. Through David comes Jesus. Then the next verse. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. We'll keep going. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. So this is now where the narrator steps back and says, here's the genealogy. Just to prove my point, that this, this reality that God's using everyday people to, to pull together his plan, not just for a redemption story for Naomi or for Ruth or Boaz, but for a redemption story for us all. That through the line of David, through Ruth and Boaz, comes Jesus, our ultimate redeemer, our ultimate rescuer. Because in this little love story is a larger love story. Each one of us, is like Ruth. We need redemption. We need to be rescued. But God in his love for us 
Just like he loved Ruth and cared for Naomi and provided Boaz to be that guardian redeemer, God has provided for us Jesus, our redeemer. And just to, just to kind of help you with that, just to, if you want to look back in your notes one more time, this is, the, this is where Jesus steps in and is not only, he is our redeemer. In, in, the, in the terms of the qualifications for the guardian redeemer, must be a relative. Jesus was born of a woman. And the guardian redeemer must be free. Jesus was perfectly sinless. There was no debt. A guardian redeemer must be able to pay. Jesus is able to pay because he's God a man. He has all the power and all the authority. And then fourthly, must be willing to pay. Jesus was willing to pay. He gave his life for us. See, Boaz is just a little picture of a redeemer, of a much bigger picture of Jesus who is our redeemer, who wants to save us and to care for us. Not that we deserve it, not that we've done anything to earn it, not because he gets anything back, because he gives everything to us. Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay our penalty, to pay the debt that we owed. But he gave us freedom, forgiveness, and life. Isn't that good news? See, we can look at Ruth and we say, yeah, she needed help. She needed to be redeemed because she was just a destitute widow, a foreigner living in this land. She had nothing. And Boaz redeemed her and she had everything. But when we look at our lives, we need to recognize too, we need redemption. We don't earn, we, nothing we can do to earn it, deserve it. We're destitute, we're broken. We need a second chance. But Jesus is our redeemer. The question is, what do you need to be redeemed from? What do you need, need to be rescued, rescued from? And for some of you, the answer is very clear. You need to be redeemed and rescued from your addiction, from anxiety, from loneliness and emptiness. You need to be redeemed from your guilt and your shame, the burden that you've been carrying for so long that you don't want anyone else to know about. Some of you need to be redeemed and rescued from the sense of purposelessness in your life. Jesus is your redeemer. Jesus is your redeemer. He came to earth willingly and able to give us a second chance, to give us the opportunity to come and find forgiveness, freedom, and life. All we have to do is turn and respond to him. Let's take a moment and let's pray together and respond to him now. As we come into this time of prayer, this is a moment for you, just you and God. And if you're here today, and you recognize that you need, you need God's help. You need to be redeemed. You want rescuing. That you've tried to figure things out in your life. You've tried to solve things, but there's just struggles, challenges, darkness, difficulties, brokenness. That's why Jesus came. And when you turn to him and say, God, I, for, I recognize that you love me. That you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. He promises he'll forgive you. Turn to him in faith. Invite him to be your redeemer. He'll respond and he can change you from the inside out. God, for those of us here who have placed our faith in you already, we recognize that you do redeem us, that you can transform us. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to keep our eyes on you, that you would continue to do a work in us and through us as we experience your redemption, your love, your grace in our life, that we would also have eyes to see those around us who need that grace.
who need care. That we'd be willing to do what you did for us. Pay the price. Give up control and, and the comfort that we carry. And instead, Lord, help us to be like you, to give, to sacrifice for those around us so that we might bless them in the way that you blessed us. God, we pray this together in your name.